Young people, you're dismissed. Oh, they're coming down the aisle already. I see that hand. <laughs> what am I supposed to move, this? Live flowers will take it. I don't know where the hand, there were handouts on the uh, uh, sound booth if you didn't get one. This in here. We changed gears in uh, Sunday school. We changed plans and uh, we thought that we would, since we are starting a new scripture reading, unless I show all my cards to you, let me read a passage of scripture and have you tell me where this is, where this is from. The scriptures record, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadarim in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. Anybody remember where that passage is found? That me that's spoken of, capital M, speaking of the Messiah. When the Jews, there will be a national turning to Christ and recognize that they missed their Messiah. And in repentant faith, they will mourn over their sin, they will mourn over their rebellion, and there will be restoration to the house of David. So says Zechariah in chapter 12. Verses 10 and following. We started a new book last week for our scripture readings, the book of Amos. And Amos, like this passage that I just read for us, is part of the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets, or the, or the Twelve as they are referred to. So, how many Minor Prophets are there? Twelve to the astute listener, uh, can, is known as the dark continent of Scripture. Sometimes when, when we're read, if there's a cross-reference in a sermon or for a Scripture reading or call to worship, once in a while a preacher might say, now, now turn to where it's dusty or the pages are, what, stuck together. If you go through the task of reading through the Bible with your church family, you might wonder, why give time to the minor prophets? Why are we doing Scripture readings as a church community, as, as participants of the New Covenant? Isn't that like watching a minor league baseball game when you could be watching the major league game? Why go to the minor prophets? There is a temptation in our present culture to dismiss the message of the prophets as irrelevant because it's old and it's circumstantially different. But you look at the message of the minor prophets. 
Their message was delivered to persuade their generations to return to obedience to the laws of God, that the recipients needed to understand that God's love and His judgment, those both are parallel truths. They are not diametrically opposed, His love and His judgment. His authenticity is defined by attributes of judgment and love working simultaneously. There is a realization that should be a a motivating force that we would, in our reading and study of the Minor Prophets, pursue a life of personal godliness and repentance producing obedience to God. They have a valuable message that is transferable to our own present life. You think of, think just basically, foundationally at what the ministry of a prophet was. They were foretelling God's truth, addressing a present condition in their lives, and they were uh, foretelling future events such as when God will remove the blinders from Israel's eyes and they will mourn. These these minor prophets were not Johnny-come-latelys. They were not the add-ins. They were written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for serious purposes and serious uses. If you wanted to notice just a couple of items in regards to the twelve in that uh, next slide, the twelve. These are the last twelve books of the Old Testament in our English Bibles. And along with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they form what is known as the latter prophets. They are, are one volume in the Hebrew Old Testament. Twelve books joined together in one scroll. And their combined length of 67 chapters is about equal to that of which, which major prophet? Can you think? Close? Not Jeremiah. Close to him in our English Bibles. Isaiah. Isaiah. Think about, as they are termed, the minor prophets. Why are they called the minor prophets? They are minor in size only, not in importance. Underscore that in your mind as you think about their message. Bob Chisholm, a great Hebrew scholar, said the minor prophets, the title given to the last 12 books of the English Old Testament, is an unfortunate label. Though much shorter than Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, these twelve prophetic books proclaim significant messages, the theological impact of which is by no means minor. So don't let the title, Minor Prophets, mislead you in underestimating the importance of their message. It's just their size. Their writing and their ministry represent the last four centuries of Old Testament history, 400 years from the 8th to the 5th century B.C. They begin with Amos, which we started last week in our Scripture readings for corporate worship service, and they end most likely 
in the ordering of our English Bible with the Italian prophet Malachi or Malachi in the fifth century. Now, though I gave you a handout that gives you an ever so brief summary in, a, in snippets of each of the twelve, I'm going to skip way ahead. I'm going to skip over these guys because I'm, I'm just wanting to you can peruse and study that at a, at a future date, but look, toward, uh, look, look on the second page, the very last slide, major themes. Because when I've tried to go and study minor prophets and you seek to out, outline it, one thing that is important in Bible study is seeing major themes, what is repeated. And that's one of the best ways, I, I, I think, to study the minor prophets is looking at them thematically. Uh, when I, at the outset of me introducing this slide on the major themes, let me be quick to mention, as I mentioned that they are the minor prophet, uh, the minor prophets of the dark continent of Scripture, they're very weighty theologically. And the ignorance that pervades the church contributes, I think, to a lot of the confusion on some of their subject matter, like perhaps like, like eschatology. Especially the day of the Lord, the day the day of Yahweh's future judgment in the tribulation and his blessing in the millennium. Uh, you know, we've got Joel who promises the Holy Spirit and the day of the Lord. We've, he talks about Armageddon, and, the, and uh, Amos talks about a future hope for the restoration of, of Israel, and Zephaniah addresses the day of the Lord, and uh, Haggai, Messiah's future reign prefigured in the, in the millennium that's prophesied here. And, and uh, that passage in, in uh, Zechariah that I read for us, in Zechariah 12, Israel's mourning over the pierced Messiah and, and the reign of Christ. So, some of the major themes, one of them is that one, the day of the Lord. It's mentioned uh, 14 times in the Minor Prophets. This is a yet future day of Yahweh's wrath. Another major theme is the sins of Israel and Judah. To study the history of Israel is to study a history of, of man like us, of rebellion and, and restoration. Uh, there's idolatry, spiritual adultery. If you were to think of, of this theological theme of spiritual adultery, which minor prophet would you run to? The theme of adultery. Hosea, exactly. So there's this uh, idolatry, spiritual adultery. There's social injustice. Amos is uh, uh, next week is going to address that of uh, of the social injustices. You know, we live in a Genesis three world, post fall. We find ourselves praying with the psalmist, "How long, O Lord?" You know, it seems like the the heathen. Are, you know, the, the unbelievers are, are the ones that are 
winning and the ones that are being blessed. Lord, when are you going to balance the books? So there's uh, the, the sin of God's people, Israel and Judah. There's also, thirdly, the judgment. So not only do we have rebellion, but we've got judgment. Judgment of Israel and Judah. And what's, what's interesting is uh, this judgment is what God does because He has the prerogative to act, uh, enact justice. When His creation spurns His law, violates His law, He judges. And that's clearly seen in, in these books. But notice how these themes kind of uh, sprinkle through the the books. There's that uh, fourth theme of restoration. As God's people play the whore of of, uh, Hosea, they're unfaithful to their master, their God, and He punishes them for that. He lets them face the consequences of their sin. There is that restoration. Matter of fact, if you want to lift your eyes up above to uh, the, the chart above that slide, if a picture's worth a thousand words, and I used to have one here, you notice that that those dual themes of judgment and restoration bracket this scroll. They bracket the twelve. They begin and they end with all these other issues in between. There's not only restoration of Israel and Judah prophesied here, but there is finally judgment of the nations. God doesn't just judge His people for their disobedience. He judges the nations. And so some of those references there address that. Again, thinking back in foundational, simple terms of who the prophets were. The prophets were special messengers chosen by God to communicate His revelation to the people. They were predominantly preachers delivering God's message in in times of crisis. Not that he was one of the minor prophets, but you look at uh, what Noah did. He was a preacher of what? Preacher of righteousness. And and he... He uh, kind of pictured what the prophets would do. The message usually dealt with with, uh, current moral and social issues that were being neglected by the recipients. We're going to see that in our Scripture read through Amos. And yet many of the prophets delivered messages that were not only for their day, but they were predictive in nature. So those two basic thrusts of foretelling for the issue at hand and foretelling what is yet to take place. 
For the latter, these messages could be either an unfolding of judgment or maybe a special blessing and salvation that God would bring upon the people. One uh, uh, commentator in, in writing about these minor prophets says that they were God-intoxicated. I just had to steal that phrase from him. They were God-intoxicated. Uh, Donald Leggett says that in uh, Loving God and Dis- Disturbing Men, Preaching from the Prophets. Uh, Loving God and disturbing men. You know, these, these guys preached with vigor and with fire and with passion. They were zealous for God's glory, zealous for His holiness. They proclaimed the word of the Lord with authority, with conviction, and with accuracy of prediction. You know, if I were to expand upon just this, this ministry of, of the prophets and, and what they did as they would address contemporary issues. They exposed the sinful practices of the people, is what we're saying. God's messengers could not compromise their harsh treatment of sin as sin. You, know, you read through the minor prophets and you think that these guys are scowling at you. But they knew that the only hope for the people was a humble turning to the Lord. That if my people, who are the ones called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I. They knew that the only solution was a humble turning to the Lord and the acknowledgement of their guilt. They must deal with sin. You know, when, when, when you've got a prophet who came to town and he says, you guys are in bondage. You're in captivity. Well, let's, let's go back through God's law and find out why we're here in captivity. Duh. Go figure. God told us that this is what would happen. That you obey me, what will I do? I'll bless you. You disobey me, there's covenant curse. And so he scattered them in captivity. So, so not only would they, would they expose the sinful practices of the people, but second of all, they'd call people back to moral, civil, and ceremonial law of God. What did, what did Josiah do in his reign? Do you remember? Yeah, and, and what, what we had, when, when there was a an attempt in humility and obedience to go back to spiritually to the law of God, it showed in their morality and the way that they conducted all of life's practices. And so when, when you're reading through the minor prophets and you see social injustice, somebody exacting unruly measures on somebody else, overtaxation or, or the poor not being uh, taken care of and the widow being neglected and all these social injustices, it was just symptomatic or a picture externally of what was going on in their lives internally. So they, the prophet would call them back to moral, civil, and ceremonial law of God. They remind, reminded the people about the character of God. Uh, Habakkuk. Remember what uh, character trait uh, stands out? Uh, what attribute of God Great, we sing about it, is thy faithfulness. It's because of your mercies, we're not consumed, O oh Lord. 
You're faithful, God. You're faithful to your covenant. You're not going to cast us off forever. Here we are wallowing in sin and misery and consequences as a result. And yet you'll be gracious to bring humility and repentance. And so the prophet would urge them to trust God with all their hearts. That they must believe and must obey Him. So they'd expose the sinful practices of the people. They'd call them back to moral, civil, and ceremonial obedience to the law. Third, they'd, they warned the people of coming judgment. That they were responsible for their disobedience to take ownership. Do you own your sin? Because the prophets teach us to own our sin. Not to blame shift, not to, not to minimize it, not to pass it off but to be responsible for their disobedience to their covenant commitment. If you wanted to jot down there in your notes Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, those two passages, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, these would, they would remind people, this is what I said just a couple of minutes ago, they would remind people, why are we in the mess that we're in? Go back to what God said would happen. Obey me, I'll bless you. Disobey me, I'll curse you. It was prophesied. Remember that grand picture before uh, God's people, God's chosen one that He took out of Egypt land, walked around the desert, backside of a desert for 40 years, and they're about to go into the promised land. They're about to step foot into the water and pass over to the land that God had promised them right along. What happens on, the, uh, on, on that side before they cross over, before they pass into the land promised them? There is a reiteration, a rehearsal, a reminder, or a second giving of the law called Deuteronomy. And towards the end of Deuteronomy, we're rehearsing what God promised. As he initiated covenant relationship with his people, saying that to the extent that you obey me, I'll bless you. And so in Deuteronomy 28, that was all predicted. God actually brought to pass what he said. We thought we could get away with sin for a season. No. So they'd warn the people. Fourth, they anticipated the coming Messiah. They anticipated the coming Messiah. They, the minor prophets help us see that redemptive history has a definite goal. If we come to the conclusion at the crucifixion that this is a good plan gone awry, we didn't get the message of the prophets. The Father... Punishing, punishing his son as a substitute for sinners was always part of the plan. Read, Isaiah, read one of the major prophets, Isaiah 53. Read the minor prophets who predicted it, who anticipated that he would not only, that, that, he, that he was coming. It's got a definite goal. When, when Jesus appeared as Jesus of Nazareth, all these things that were prophesied over 300 prophecies instantaneously were fulfilled automatically. When we're told this, this, these minute details, uh, even right down to where He was going to be born, 
God's Word authenticated itself as being inerrant, without error. And so if there are prophecies that anticipated the coming of Messiah and yet some that did not come to fruition at His first coming, they await another coming. It's got a definite goal. God will sovereignly move all to the consummation in the Messianic age. His name will be honored. His voice will be obeyed by all the people of the earth. Even if it doesn't come until every knee bows that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, you know, biblical prophecy, when we study passages of prophecy, it is unique in its clarity and its specific and its fulfillment in that first advent over 300 prophecies precisely fulfilled and 400 plus more remaining to be fulfilled when He comes again. This is why Luke can record in his narrative of the unfolding of redemption in Acts chapter 10 and verse 43, it is to Him that all the prophets bear witness. Jesus is there from cover to cover. He's not in every verse of the prophets, but they sure are looking forward to Him. It's kind of like what I said last week as we're studying uh, the book of Ruth. We've got symbols, we've got types, we've got pictures. And what, what is Boaz picture for us in this romance of redemption. He, he pictures for us the kinsman redeemer, the one who came near, who robed himself in flesh and condescended to come to man. Philippians 2 became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. To him, all the prophets bear witness uniformly, consistently, never contradicting each other so that expose the sinful practices and longings. They'd call the people back to covenant faithfulness. They'd warn of coming judgment. They'd anticipate the coming Messiah. In, in essence, their ministry was twofold. It was one of condemnation and one of consolation. What a, what a dual role that uh, God gave the prophets. So let's... We've only got about 15 minutes of Sunday school left, and though we cannot go through all of them, let's just give a, a sampling to whet your appetite, whether it be through the Scripture readings in Amos that we're going through or uh, in your personal study. Going back up to where it begins. Hosea. What is the big picture of this minor prophet? Little book with a big message. Loyal love and covenant faithfulness. One of the big themes of the prophets, which I trust that you understand, is you cannot understand much of the Old Testament without understanding covenant without understanding covenant. Covenant relationship is central to the message of these 8th century prophets that we begin with. Each of them comes to town 
and they accuse God's people of violation and obligations, and he warns of impending doom. Yet he, they give a glimmer of hope. You know, so, so they say, we've rebelled, but we'll be restored. And so they, they give that glimmer of hope that at the end of the dark tunnel of punishment and exile, let me give you an example here in Hosea. Hosea is the unhappy story of Hosea and his unfaithful wife, Gomer, who illustrate the loyal love of God and the spiritual adultery of Israel, those who were unfaithful to her marriage vows. Their sins are contrasted with God's holiness. They will be judged for sin, but restored not because of their faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness. So an example, Hosea gives some vivid imagery in this little book. And the Lord likened His love for Israel as a father patiently teaching His son to walk in Hosea 11, 1 through 3. Do you parents remember what that was like? As I was watching Dana out on her bike yesterday, now that she's finally getting some of that, but... Remember when the, you know, first the baby starts to sit up a little on its own and fall over, and then they are tentatively thinking, and, and you're, you know, you're, you're sitting on the couch. Are they, are they, are they going to do it? And, and they finally, uh, imagine that. They actually, every baby learns to walk. And so Hosea gives this vivid imagery likening God's love for Israel as a father patiently teaching his son to walk. How that he took special delight in his covenant people and yet they rejected. So the same parent who finds great satisfaction and joy in rearing kids to the glory of God that same child that you've invested the time and energy and emotion in spits in your face, walks out on you, rejects everything you've got to say. Hosea says you've broken the covenant. You have strayed. So we've got an adulterous wife but a faithful husband. Adulterous adulterous Israel but a faithful Lord. We'd mentioned that one of the themes of the Minor Prophets is them addressing social injustice. Uh, Malachi, when he informs by God's inspiration what quote-unquote worship had gotten to be like in his contemporary day and age, What was their worship, their so-called worship like to God? When they bring their sacrifices, they were bringing the, the halt, the lame, against what was required. Amos addresses social injustice in Israel. Eight pronouncements of judgment and deliverance 
of three sermons to list the sins of the house of Israel. And yet people reject Amos. Eh, Amos, uh, he's a windbag. Don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. They reject his warnings and their coming judgment is portrayed in a series of five visions. But he closes the book with a very brief word of future hope. He doesn't close the pages in hopelessness of here we've got disobedient children of Israel. But there is a ray of hope. If they come to town and they are preaching God's judgment is sure, one minor prophet that ought to come to mind is Obadiah, who teaches the certainty of Edom's judgment. This obscure prophet directs his brief oracle to the descendant of Esau because of their gloating over Jerusalem's invasion their judgment would be total destruction you laugh you scorn at the decimation of the city of God's delight your judgment is going to be absolute and so Verses 1 through 18, judgment of Edom. Verses 19 through 21, the restoration of Israel. You scorn God's people, He's going to raise His people back up. We spent, I think, a month studying through the book of Jonah. We'll move past him. How about Micah? Micah. God's justice versus Judah's injustice. What a great contrast. Great contrast. Divine retribution is threatened because of radical corruption on every level of society. One thing we ought to learn from the minor prophets, that depravity is total. It's manifest in a multitude of different ways. It's, it's manifested through rulers, prophets, priests, judges, businessmen, landlords, and the list goes on in infinitum, or however it goes. But yet God's promises will be fulfilled in the future kingdom of Messiah. Judgment will ultimately be followed by forgiveness and restoration. So the book ends like many of the minor prophets, on a note of promise. A note of promise. So when we're reading through uh, the newspaper of the minor prophets and, and like the newsstands of our day, you, know, you, you watch the news until you can't stomach it anymore. Your stomach turns and you start weeping for those persecuted brothers. When, when you're reading, even on the internet, for those of us that don't have TV, about the starvation and mothers throwing their kids over the cliff so that, the, uh, ter- so that they don't get ravished. It's bleakness. It's blackness. And as you read through the blackness and you understand the despondency that sin leads to, don't pass over the note of hope that through humility and repentance there does come restoration. And so each of the prophets with, with the, uh, the same message pronouncing judgment also pronounces a God's justice. How about Nahum? Nineveh's judgment and destruction. You remember when Jonah 
came to town. The greatest, probably the greatest revival ever recorded on the pages of Scripture, God caused. And so, the civil laws passed in Nineveh, right? Uh, repentance right down to the animals. Picture, uh, it's just remarkable. About 125 years after their repentance, Micah predicted imminent destruction. The people in this Assyrian capital city reverted to idolatry and brutality following the cycle of rebellion, repentance, restoration. And so Nahum prophesies of Nineveh's, Nineveh's judgment and destruction. He starts off with God's majestic holiness and in contrast to that, Nineveh's judgment. So much more that we could say in regard to the prophets that we don't have time. But let me encourage you to, as, as we read through Amos together, as part of our worship service, that we, we look for some of these themes and we see that these far-off people from so many years ago are not quite as dissimilar from us as we might think. Let's learn from them. Learn from their negative examples. Let's learn from the positive examples. Again, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, that all the Old Testament was written for our admonition. Lord, we realize that we are at a different time, a different era of your working. And yet the human heart remains the same. The message of salvation remains the same. Lord, help us to glean from the feet of the prophets as they unpack, the, unpack for us the horrible nature and the heinousness of sin and covenant treachery against our King, our God, our Redeemer, our Savior. Help us as well to pray for the peace of Israel, to look forward to when You redeem those people, when they look on Him in whom they'd pierced and mourn for, as one mourns for an only child. And as we go out with the only message of hope that You've given us, the Gospel, that the Gospel is still the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Use us as feeble but faithful vessels, as ambassadors that You've sent out of Your mercy. Help us to tell people to seek Christ while you might be found. To flee to you for salvation lest they experience your displeasure and your judgment to come. Thank you for your greatness exposed through the prophets. And as it contrasts with our sinfulness, might we have a greater view of the holiness and the justice and the love and the greatness of our great God, in whose name we pray. Amen.